This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and on this special Climate One program, we're going on the road for a tour of the UN Climate Summit in Paris. We'll take you to different corners of this Olympic-sized event and talk with farmers, food and energy entrepreneurs, and youths whose families are being affected by climate disruption now. We begin in a diplomatic compound on the outskirts of Paris, where the official negotiations are taking place amid tight security. It's like a world's fair for political and business elites, with country pavilions displaying how they're greening their economy. Some of the most bullish economies are on the west coast of North America, and I sat down with five leaders from there who are not waiting for the international agreement to start in 2020. I spoke with California Governor Jerry Brown, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, British Columbia's Environment Minister Mary Pollack, Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson, and Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff. I started by asking Governor Brown about business groups that say his campaign to stabilize the climate hurts the economy. I think the bigger businesses are more uh, climate friendly, as it were. The, the smaller, more independent people, you know, driving a truck or having a, they, they feel the burden and they don't have the, um, I don't know, the, the psychic space to see the bigger picture. So... Uh, but, yeah, uh, Google, Apple, um, many of the banks, Bank of America, uh, they're, they're, they're solid. But it's still a battle. America is very divided. Uh, the Senate uh, is overwhelmingly controlled by climate deniers. Same thing with the House of Representatives. So that's a continuing problem. But I think a signing of a good agreement will uh, help us overcome what I would call the, the mindless opposition, because there's a lot of people here who are not on the left who are going to be signing this agreement. And I think that that idea will will get through to these knuckleheads. <laughs> uh, Governor Inslee, you worked in Washington, D.C. You know, you've seen the, the gridlock at the national level. And how are subnational cities, states, provinces moving forward when, at a time when there's been some hostility in Canada and the U.S. toward putting a price on carbon pollution and moving ahead on the green economy? Well, there's a variety of ways. We, on the, you know, on the West Coast, we live on innovation. We, we, it, it's our stock and trade. It's what we sell as intellectual capital. Uh, you know, my state gave uh, the world commercial airliners for the Boeing 707, the Microsoft software. We've invented the $4 uh, cup of coffee. So we've done a lot of really good innovative work. And so what we, I think, intrinsically and inherently understand on the West Coast uh, is that this is a job-creating opportunity, that the entire transition to a clean energy economy is, is one of, if not the greatest job-creating opportunities of the last several centuries, and we're certainly experiencing it in my state, so I can go home and say, hey, look, you know what the best job-creating industry is in my state today? It's clean energy. So we've had 19% growth in, in clean, clean energy jobs the last several years. It's 70,000 people who are working in good family wage jobs, and we've had in our state 
We know we have uh, uh, Governor Brown coined this new psychological term, knuckleheads. Uh, I'm sure it's recognized by the profession. But those groups argue that uh, cleaning up the air is is inherently uh, against job creation. And they're just flat wrong. I mean, just look at the evidence. So my state has more rapid job creation than 48 uh, other states. Mayor Schaaf, tell us about green jobs in Oakland. In particular, you're doing things to help people recently out of prison get green jobs. Yeah, in Oakland, we really are looking for opportunities to leverage our climate change action with other social equity goals, particularly around public health and job creation. Uh, For example, we're working with an organization called Rising Sun, and they are training both uh, people coming out of prison as well as high school students both in being able to go into low-income communities, perform energy audits, and help uh, low-income homeowners make those energy efficiency improvements that not only help the environment, but lower their monthly energy costs, as well as provide the skills for uh, installing solar panels, other great working-class jobs that our city needs. Our economy is rocking. We have 350 companies that employ 7,000 employees in our city. Um, This is a big part of our economy. But we also are using it to promote public health. We are a big port city. And obviously, goods movement is an important conversation in the climate change debate. Uh, We have required our ships to plug into clean electricity rather than run their dirty diesel engines when they are at our port. We've also created standards for the truck engines and required filters on the trucks that drayage uh, the goods. And that not only has had huge impacts on lowering our core emissions, but has had great public health improvements for our fence line communities in West Oakland, which traditionally have had unacceptable rates of asthma. So public health, job creation, and climate change all go together under a social equity umbrella in Oakland. It's been a lot of work done in California uh, within the Latino community really seeing climate as a public health issue first and foremost because they live near the sources of pollution. Uh, Gregor Robertson, Vancouver has a very clean brand. I remember in the subway seeing supernatural British Columbia. It's a tourist destination. It's it's an Olympic city. You've done some work that showed the brand was worth $31 billion. So tell us about the brand risk of fossil fuels and how the brand of Vancouver being a clean city works with having a clean economy? Well, it's been uh, essential to our success as a city. We have uh, a a brand valuation that was done actually in the context of fighting against a massive uh, pipeline expansion from Alberta that would see a seven-fold increase in super tankers coming through Vancouver's harbour right around Stanley Park. And uh, Vancouverites, a massive majority, have been opposed to this uh, kind of development and the impacts that it would have on our economy. And we, we wanted to validate that. We, uh, we saw in that brand valuation, a $31.5 billion brand value with the, the core uh, value around being a green city, being a place that people want to come to. Uh, uh, tourism is a huge industry. There are 30,000 tourism jobs in Vancouver that would be at risk if we had a, a worst-case oil spill in our harbour uh, that would affect our beaches. Uh, so we, there, there's a, obviously a lot of uh, pushback on that kind of economic growth that, that has very little benefit and a ton of risk for, for our city on the West Coast. 
Uh, we are thriving right now. In Vancouver, we have the fastest growing economy of any city in Canada and projected to go at that clip uh, for the next five years. So we, we have extraordinary growth. Clean tech and renewable energy are driving that growth. Creative industries, low-carbon industries are driving that growth. And, uh, and there's a lot of synergy between our cities up and down this coast. We're attracting people, talent, and investment from all over the world to the west coast of North America because we're shining on this front. People want to live there. People want to build businesses. And, and that's the secret of our success. It doesn't need to be a secret anymore. I think the fact that we're all here and talking about it in Paris is important because uh, it tells a very different story, busts that myth that somehow economy and environment and climate are, are at odds with each other. We're, we're proving it's the exact opposite of that. Uh, I'd like to go to our lightning rounds uh, and just ask a uh, uh, yes or no, uh, one-word answer to this, which may be a challenge for, uh, for elected people. Mayor Robertson, uh, do you support or oppose proposals to build new coal export terminals in British Columbia? Absolutely oppose. Governor Inslee, uh, there's two proposed ports in Washington that would double U.S. capacity for coal exports. You can't comment on those directly. They're under regulatory review by your administration. My question is, to meet the world's carbon budget and protect the climate, most coal needs to stay in the ground and not be burned. Do you agree or disagree? I think that's the science. Uh, Mayor Schaff, uh, California is saying it's okay to sell coal but not use it. Sounds like a drug dealer on TV saying sell it, don't use it. Well, we're also concerned about the health impacts when coal travels through or is handled in your city, and that's an area that Oakland is looking at regulating. So, Governor Brown, uh, California has moved away from coal-fired electricity. Uh, the state legislature recently passed a law requiring the state pension funds yeah. to divest from coal. Um, Everyone listening to this used fossil fuels today. They're going to be with us for a long time. Uh, is it hypocritical of California to expand coal exports while trying to be a, a climate leader? Well, coal does pass through uh, various terminals in both North and, and Southern California. And it does make sense to be shutting down coal plants and then export it for somebody else to burn it in a more dirty way. But uh, what we need is a national plan to reduce all fossil fuels, certainly coal uh, would be at the top, uh, but also oil and natural gas. We need a game plan. So we need a, a, a phase-out, but it does take a, a national policy because you are putting people out of work. Okay, this is uh, back to our lightning round. One last question for each of you. Uh, Mayor Schaff, Americans can learn a lot from Canadians about fighting climate change, yes or no? Yes, we can all learn from each other. And I'm sure they can learn some things from us as well. Absolutely. Ma Mayor Robertson, Americans can learn a lot about life from Canadians. <laughs> Are you talking about gun control? Absolutely. Uh, but, um, but we have a lot to learn from each other. Minister Pollack, one day Republicans in the United States Congress will embrace the revenue-neutral carbon fee and dividend that British Columbia pioneered. Yes or no? Well, yeah, and I guess, uh, I guess one day I'm going to win the lottery and buy a house in Paris. <laughs> a lot of them, George, George Shultz and a lot of them who are not in office are already I think, there. I, to, to be fair, I think what Governor Brown pointed out is correct. Um, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a general view that's being expressed by some of the more prominent uh, Republicans at this stage. That doesn't mean that every single Republican holds that view. In the second half of this event, I interviewed governors from Brazil, Nigeria, and other countries. 
We talked about rich countries asking developing countries to protect their forests. Healthy forests store carbon that is released into the air when they die or are cut down. At the end, Governor Ben Ayade from Cross River State in Nigeria turned the tables and asked me a question. As far as we are concerned, our core problem is poverty, is job creation. Your problem is pollution, but you cause the pollution. So we are bearing the brunt. We, for example, Africa and indeed Nigeria, have the largest tropical rainforest in the world. But again, that is the forest you are saying stop. It comes to the real issue. People are concerned. When you stop people from deforestation, what is the alternative you're going to create? And you don't have sufficient economic, you don't have the resources to support new livelihoods and new lifestyle. What is the international community doing? And that's the question I want to put to you, even as you have been putting off questions to us. We want to ask you this question before we leave. What is the world doing for us as we preserve the forest for the sake of your own uh, pollution that you have caused? And I'd like you to take this question. Thank you very much. Certainly, I hear your point about pollution and poverty, and there's a lot of high-class problems uh, in the global north, and the global north created a lot of these problems. And any elected official, their job is to create wealth and jobs for their people. That's their job. Um, and honestly, people in California, some of them don't like the idea of offsets in other countries. They would prefer that those offsets exactly. happen in California in than some foreign country. Exactly. Uh, so those politicians, the people who were up here before you might agree with you, but the people who vote for them don't. The world's leaders are sequestered in the secure blue zone, trying to influence the outcome of the global deal, but there's action all over Paris. One of the biggest hubs of activity is the Global Landscapes Forum. Farmers and agricultural experts from all over the world are gathered a short distance from the Arc de Triomphe. The focus is on the world's food, growing it, trading it, keeping it from being washed away by rainstorms or starved for lack of water. Food security is a big part of the climate change puzzle, and it begs the question, why isn't food in the headlines? And it never has been, always been completely focused on energy and transport. We sat down with Frank Reisberman, head of an international agricultural research group and a former director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Paris Climate Summit is called the COP, for Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Climate Convention. But at least at this COP, there's much more buzz around agriculture. We'd have to say the negotiators are still not talking enough about agriculture, but in many of the side events, in many of the discussions, and most importantly, in as much as 80% of all the national country reports, agriculture shows up as part of the commitments that countries want to make on mitigation, meaning agriculture is much more present in what the countries bring to the table than what the negotiators seem to reflect. So why don't the negotiators talk about food? Because they don't agree. Uh, there's a big divide between the people that come from California or the U.S. who want to talk about mitigation in agriculture and the countries like India and many of the other developing countries who say, look, we didn't do this. We are being impacted. Small-scale agricultures, poor smallholders, are among the most vulnerable to the impact of climate change. So they don't want to mitigate. They want help with adaptation. And therefore, indeed, uh, we have to find win-win solutions to bring people to the table. So agriculture is not on the table, so to speak, because it's, it's, it's controversial, because people, the rich countries have machines and lots of ways to deal with climate change, and the developing countries do not. Indeed, if you, 
eat a hamburger in California, if you eat, uh, say, meat that was raised with corn, then you have a very different part in the whole climate puzzle than if you're eating, uh, you know, a much smaller piece of meat from a cow that was grass-fed in the rangelands of Ethiopia. So we have a very different background and perspective on what the issues are. It's true that we have food systems that are very unsustainable for lots of reasons. We use too much energy, we use too much water, we degrade the land. And yes, uh, agriculture is a big contributor worldwide. Agri-food systems produce as much as a quarter of all greenhouse gases, and livestock can be roughly half that. So yes, uh, we believe agriculture can become part of the solution, but it will have to be done in a way that is a solution for both adaptation and mitigation. How about some particular people, you know, f- coffee farmers? Who's, who's being affected most by climate impacts? Almost all of those 500 million smallholder farmers, families in developing countries are very, very vulnerable to climate change. Not only are the climate impacts more in tropical countries, but those folks have almost no capacity to adapt. So they feel that it's really a big injustice to ask them to contribute to mitigation when they didn't contribute to the problem and are among the most vulnerable. So yes, uh, you know, uh, in Nicaragua, you said coffee, some 80% of the lands that are now used for coffee production will no longer be suitable uh, in 30 years from now. So we either move those people up the mountain, not really a realistic solution, or we help develop coffee beans that can deal with the heat, or they're out of business. Some small farmers recognize the climate is changing and are modifying their ways to deal with it. Uh, my name is Sudarshan Chaudhary. I am belonging of a Tharu indigenous group of Nepal, and I am 33 years old. Sudarshan Chaudhary's family has been farming in Nepal for more generations than he can count. And we mostly crop their vegetables, some fruits. I have some mango garden, some area, some banana, some papaya. And uh, seasonal vegetables we grow, like chili, brinzal, uh, cabbage. A generation uh, ago, the Nepalese government began giving out subsidies to farmers to use chemical fertilizers, which has devastated their soil. But visiting teachers from New Zealand showed Sudarshan there was another way, using a resource that was all around them. And uh, they inspired me. Uh, if we make a, a cow dung to compost, it, we convert it compost, that it is a diamond for soil. So all over Nepal, there's lots of cow manure, and most people think it's waste, not valuable, but you're saying it's diamond for soil? Yeah, uh, cow dung is diamond for soil, I think. Besides revitalizing the soil on the family farm, there's another surprising use for all that cow manure. Uh, we also use biogas. From cow dung, we are also using, uh, making biogas and use uh, our cooking, for uh, uh, heating water, lots of things we're doing from this biogas. Sudarshan sees biodynamic farming as a way to bring his land back to health. And in biodynamic farming, uh, we practice uh, uh, about how is uh, nature friendly. We uh, product our all vegetables, our all products are nature friendly, and there we're using biodynamic compost for a good soil. Uh, if we have good soil, then it gives us a good uh, uh, fruit, a good, uh, good uh, tree, good vegetable, a good water, a good air. Everything is going, will be good.
biodynamic farming is a natural farming. Uh, it is not uh, without nature. It is uh, going with nature. In biodynamic farming, uh, we using planting calendar. Uh, we using the rhythm of earth and sun. Uh, we all have rhythm. And how is climate change affecting farming in Nepal? Uh, climate change is only not affecting in Nepal. It is affecting all over world. Uh, because we are in Nepal is also a part of world. Uh, now in Nepal, uh, I think about uh, there is uh, less water raining, raining less, uh, drop, uh, and uh, water level in ground water level is going low, and uh, uh, temperature is uh, going high. We are feeling more hot. We harvest rainwater for creating a small ponds. It is very useful for uh, off-seasonal irrigation for uh, our uh, uh, animals to feeding our animals for us also. Because uh, water saves our biodiversity. At first, Sudarshan's father was skeptical of all the changes he was making. Uh, in initiation, when I want to start biodynamic farming, he didn't believe, believed, but it works very good. Then he believed, and he teaching others. Now I I'm happy because one thing I changed my father and my family. I have no more success, but I can own success that I can change my father. That is, my, that is great for me. Sudarshan has empowered farmers in his village and came to Paris to spread the word. I am start with youth groups who are interested. I am for awareness of biodynamic farming. I am starting in my village biodynamic seminar with uh, new farmers who are interested, and uh, I'm making new farmers. I sat down with two larger farmers who are also figuring out how to grow food in wobbly weather. Eiji Kawamura is a farmer near Los Angeles who was California's Secretary of Food and Agriculture under Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Don McCabe is president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. Well, I uh, farm corn, soybeans, and wheat in southwestern Ontario. I'm essentially about an hour northeast of Detroit, Michigan, just to give a location. I'm on very flat clay soils. McCabe says climate disruption is hitting him hard. And the reality is, I guess, uh, in some ways a blessing, in some ways a a horror story, because uh, I have noticed that we're getting more impactful uh, rings, and when they hit, uh, you're really glad if you get the edge of it and not the brunt of it. So I ended up this year with 11 inches of rain in two weeks on, uh, on one home farm. It was a very localized area, but it certainly impacted the corn yield on that farm, took it way down because of the loss of actual crop itself during that time frame. He rejects the notion that a warming climate will be good for Canada, allowing it to grow more food. No, there's a little thing called the Canadian Shield, which is a whole bunch of rock. And it hasn't weathered in 4 billion years, and I don't expect it's going to happen anytime soon now to break down. And in other areas of the, of the country, there's a whole lot of uh, wetland territory on boreal forest that is there that uh, is also going to feel the impact of climate change as it moves forward. And again, that's not new land to be found. There's some acres that we may be able to bring to production, but this is not a great big boom. A.G. Kawamura, you farm on a former military base in Southern California, and how is the changing weather affecting you there? 
You know, we're here at the Global Landscape Forum, and uh, uh, the Global Landscape means that farming takes place to us, those of us, the few of us that are farmers here at this conference, uh, that uh, agriculture takes place all over the planet. I, I happen to farm in urban Orange County in Southern California, uh, surrounded by some 20 million people. And yes, we're farming currently on a repurposed military base, the old El Toro Marine Base, and we're uh, actually in between the runways, and we're uh, farming on repurposed land that used to be a golf course that used to be officers housing and we found that there's some actually some very great very good dirt there the challenges that we're facing from climate though are you'd be surprised yes we're feeling the impact of the drought we see it in in high salinity in our, our soils high salinity in the water supplies that we do have uh, just south of us in a small watershed we had the water run out on the well that we were using it, it went dry and so we're currently not farming on that piece it's a separate watershed from where i am now i use reclaim water uh, which is a climate smart use if you will but as el nino has been forecast to show up we're talking about uh, and looking for and planning for flooding because when we come out of a drought just like Australia did you generally have catastrophic flooding and so some of the decisions we made this year was to actually idle one field and not plan it because we could see that it would probably go underwater in uh, in a large rainstorm event and sure enough in September uh, unbeknownst to us we'd never seen two inches of rain in one day uh, ever in, in our area sure enough that field that we were going to plant did go underwater so it was a good decision but these are the kinds of things that farmers everywhere have to be able to think ahead not just for today Day, but think ahead about how to adapt, how to be more resilient, how to change things on your land to help make things work better. Uh, a lot of people uh, are concerned about food stress and scarcity in a climate-disrupted world. So who are the people that are most vulnerable to food shocks, to con- rising food prices? Who are those people? Well, all, all over the planet, you have significant areas where uh, an average person would spend 40, 50 percent or 60 percent of everything they earn just to put food on a plate. Um, The sustainable development goals that have really targeted by the year 2030 significant reductions in hunger and in poverty, because they go hand in hand, are, are, are really the, the, the marching orders that comes out of a conference like this. Everybody goes back home and starts to work towards making some of these goals actually come into, uh, become real. And I, I think the, the fact that there has been great strides to address hunger or to end hunger and to address poverty to some extent, um, it just shows you that it's a matter of uh, the world having the capacity to produce enough food for everybody and then the will to provide it for everybody. I think one of the more important things that we're looking looking at into the future is today we have the capacity. We actually have the physical capacity with all the food systems all over the world to feed everybody, but we kind of choose not to do that for different reasons, wars, uh, dictators, other kinds of policies that just don't make sense. But uh, our challenge is if we have significantly big weather challenges, changing climates, uh, and you have regions not able to do their food production, we might lose the capacity to feed everybody as we rise up to 9 billion people from 7.5 billion. The extra 2 billion people that might show up requires us to know that we better do a couple things right, or many things right. So that's, I think, our goal right now. Make sure that in the future we'll still have the capacity to feed everybody, and then let humanity step up to the plate and create a world where everybody actually is fed. 
A lot of people rising out of poverty into the middle class, they usually have a growing appetite for animal protein. And getting that animal protein, typically in the form of beef, is really hard on the planet because cows emit uh, greenhouse gases out of both ends, and a lot of times there's forests cut down for grazing. So how is that going to play out in terms of feeding a growing appetite for animal protein while still protecting uh, the planet for you know, reducing carbon? Well, thank you for the question. I think the first thing we need to do here is uh, back up for a second and check some facts. Uh, number one, I think the deforestation age is over, and there's enough satellite imagery up there to prove it, and also to be a good referee moving forward. So I think that uh, the massive uh, destruction of rainforest days are over, and I think uh, there was there, it certainly happened in the past. I'm not trying to deny that. But Brazil, for one, has certainly curtailed that exercise. The next issue that I wish to tackle is this one around water footprint. I think a very bunch of inventive people have created a whole bunch of things to ensure that uh, they find the um, uh, water footprint they wish for the numbers they want to have. And if somebody really wants to do some homework here, maybe you should compare chocolate to uh, beef at the same time, and you'll find it's worse. But nobody's going to stop doing anything on Valentine's Day. I would just add that as they, people talk about animal agriculture, I mean, there's a lots of different kinds of animals um, that humans are eating. Uh, from, I'm assuming that includes fish and includes including poultry of all kinds. I'm assuming it would include uh, pigs, uh, hogs, and certainly hoofed animals as well. So. The diet for animals is, is one part of discussion. And actually, when you are reading um, uh, some of the really important information that's coming out of what happens with grazing, overgrazing is very destructive. It really messes up environments. But grazing done correctly, which we seem to have forgotten that that exists, so grazing done correctly actually is one of the only ways you build soil. And you're seeing some really good study. All pesticides must be bad. Um, people are saying, oh, grazing was bad, so all grazing must be bad. That's not the case. We need pesticides. We need grazing. But we need to do it correctly. We need to do it sustainably. And we have new tools to do it all the time. That's kind of the hallmark of a system that's working. It's, again, it's allowing us to be more resilient, but also allowing us to produce the things that people want. Does that, mean go, does that mean moving away from factory farms to more pastoral types of grazing? No, I, I think it's all the above. Uh, this, this food system that we have, which is big, which is small, which is organic, which is conventional. I, I'm both an organic and a conventional producer. Um, the systems that we have to rely on, on any given day, one system may fail. A big system, big industrial system might be shut down for weeks at a time because of one thing or another. And you better hope that the other systems are up and thriving and doing well because they're the ones that allow you to have this oversupply, if you will, this abundance that we enjoy. Uh, and all of us have had crop failures, uh, big or small, uh, organic or conventional. Everybody, every, if you know a grower, ask him. Ask him how many times has he ever lost a crop. The fact is that I lost a crop this last year. No one cares at the store because a lot of other people's didn't. Don McCabe says other farmers in his association are also taking it on the chin, and he feels their pain. Well, I've had the uh, unfortunate uh, loss of crop, uh, and in 
I think in a larger scale, the story that I'd offer is that in Ontario, and this is, uh, some will argue it's climate change, some will argue it's the luck of the draw, but uh, frost uh, has taken out apple blossoms uh, really, really dramatically uh, about two or three years ago, and then again this year, uh, apple growers and then the province of Ontario lost half their crop. And they knew that in the spring, and then you got to go through the whole season now with knowing there's nothing there. And at the end of the day, did Ontario uh, uh, residents see any issue? No, because the apples are going to come in out of Washington State. They're going to come in out of Chile and Argentina. The supply goes on. If farming was that simple, uh, you just went to the parking lot every day, walked in the side door, and went to your spot on the uh, line, we wouldn't have to worry about the issue of, of climate change because at the end of the day, uh, there's only one rule in farming, and that's that Mother Nature wins. If you're just joining us, this Commonwealth Club special program is a tour through the Climate Summit in Paris. There's a lot going on here. Diplomats from more than 180 countries are negotiating a pact to reduce carbon pollution. Advocates and analysts from around the world are here to be part of this historic event and influence it in some way. Hundreds of corporations joined the call for a climate deal in Paris, including Apple, General Electric, IBM, and other icons of American industry. Bill Gates came to announce he's partnering with Richard Branson, Mark Zuckerberg, and other billionaires to create a new fund to invest in breakthrough technologies. We need to move to sources of energy that are even cheaper than the hydrocarbon energy we use today. We need it to be not only clean, but also reliable. And I think we'll look back on today as an important milestone towards achieving that goal. Companies striving to create those cleaner forms of energy gathered at the Sustainable Innovation Forum at France's National Soccer Stadium, a site of one of the Paris terror attacks. Near the stadium's luxury boxes, Norwegian entrepreneur Auden Time is holding what looks like a small round brownie. This is a kind of briquette, uh, and it is made of elephant grass. Uh, and this new product, we call it CNF, and that's carbon negative fuel. And you have probably never heard about anything called carbon negative fuel, and that's the reason. Uh, because what we do is that we take the CO2 from the sky. And there's a lot of CO2 in the sky, unfortunately. And we capture it with uh, the best CO2 pumps you can find in the world, and that's elephant grass. And why? Because elephant grass is growing like four meters in just 100 days. So this is growing extremely fast. It's not like the grass you have in your own garden. So what we are doing then is to take the CO2 down by, uh, by the elephant grass, and then it stores about uh, a little bit less than 20% in the roots, so it actually gets carbon negative. And when you actually then burn, uh, make the grass into a new product called CNF, and by doing this process, you actually are then able to replace fossil fuel with a new product that is carbon negative. And then you can just guess what kind of effect that could actually have on global warming. And this little brownie puck that you're holding, uh, you can put that into existing facilities and burn it to make electricity? Exactly. If you are, for instance, an owner of a coal plant, then you don't need to do any big investment in new infrastructure. You can just, for instance, replace uh, half of your coal with this product instead. Where does elephant grass grow? How much land and water does it take? 
Oh, that's a long, long, long story. But uh, to make it short, it grows uh, in the areas around equator. Uh, so that could be Africa. It could be, for instance, Brazil and South America. And uh, the unique thing, unique uh, thing about uh, elephant grass is that it's actually growing in marginal lands. So it means that uh, instead of uh, replacing food, for instance, and uh, taking areas you could have used for food production, it does the complete opposite. You can grow it in marginal areas that is completely useless for uh, the local population today. But by planting the grass, you also get a lot of CO2 down in the ground. And what is then happening is that uh, when it's uh, in in a decade or so, you can actually get a lot of the marginal land to become fertile again. So we can lease the land for 10 and 20 years, and then you can start actually growing food on the land in the future. So you're actually turning desert into, uh, into food production in the future. So you're saying that you're taking carbon out of the sky and growing plants that help generate electricity and also in time will create better soil. Exactly. Well, uh, American baseball players would call that a triple play. Yeah, I would say that's uh, that's a good triple play, and that's what we are going to prove the next years. A few steps away is a tray of what looks like hamburgers. Unlike the power brownies, these are edible, but they aren't exactly what they appear to be. It's made of plants. It's from simple, natural plant ingredients that you could find in a grocery store or farmer's market. Pat Brown is a former Stanford medical professor who wants to disrupt the global food industry with this burger. He's convinced some big-name investors, Bill Gates, Vinod Kosla, and companies such as Google and UBS, that he has a chance with his innovative recipe. It's about eight different plant sources. We get different ingredients very carefully selected from each of the plant sources that um, go into making it. But you're not saying which ones, that's your secret sauce? No, actually, if if you want to have a conversation about that, I could tell you, but we have a lot of different plants that go into making it, and we very selectively pull out specific ingredients to make it. So a couple examples. Is there cucumbers in here? Is there quinoa? Is there strangely enough... Uh, we tried cucumbers in there uh, for a very specific reason that had to do with something that we discovered about meat. And we found then something better than cucumbers, which was honeydew melon. So, um, and it was, it's an important part of the meat flavor, believe it or not, um, that you can figure out if you do a deep kind of chemical analysis of what gives meat its flavor, and then you look for plants that have those same compounds, you find surprises. So uh, that's an example. So no cucumbers, but actually we could have used cucumbers in there. A veggie burger is for vegans and vegetarians and people who are, who are looking for an alternative for meat. And our burger is for meat lovers who just want the best meat they can buy. Um, I'm Sophie. Hi. Um, I'm from London. Uh, and I've eaten meat all my life. Um, I would really like to one day kind of be vegan, but... Um, not really something that I would find very easy to do, especially kind of just giving up, yeah, giving up meat really would be, I think, very difficult. Okay, so it looks a lot like a burger. It looks exactly like a burger. Um, I kind of would really like to eat it. It looks really appetizing. So, um, okay, I'm going to try it. Um. Mm. Yep, it tastes a lot like a burger. But it's not. That's the thing. I know it isn't, so it's quite strange. Pat, what's your background, and how did you come to founding Impossible Foods? 
I was a uh, professor at Stanford University in the medical school for 25 years. Uh, most of my job involved uh, doing basic research, cell and molecular biology, genomics, cancer biology. Five years ago, I had a sabbatical. I decided I wanted to identify the biggest problem in the world that I could have an important impact on. I decided very quickly it was animal farming, a huge global problem that nobody is doing anything serious to address, and um, and decided that it was actually a solvable problem and uh, and that there was a relatively simple solution, which is to simply develop a more sustainable way of making equally delicious products to anything that we get today from animals. Delicious, nutritious, affordable. If we can make products that compete successfully in the market with what we get today from animal farming, that's the way to solve it. Nobody has to make a sacrifice. It's a lot easier to trade your Hummer for a Prius than to give up foods that you've grown up on and, and, and love that are a big part of the pleasure of your daily life. And so it's very difficult for uh, people who love meat to give it up. And why do you think animal farming is so bad? Why, why is beef and meat so bad? Well, I think it's uh, relatively widely known in the uh, conservation and climate community that animal farming is the most destructive industry on Earth. It is responsible for one-seventh of all net greenhouse gas emissions, which is more than the United States and more than the entire transportation sector. It consumes and pollutes more water than any other industry. It uh, currently occupies an area of land that is more than one-third of every square inch of land on Earth, more than the area of North and South America combined, completely devoted to raising animals for food. And as a result, it's by far the biggest driver of biodiversity losses. Um, it's the biggest driver of the current mass species extinction, which is the biggest the Earth has seen in more than 100 million years. So what's the goal of Impossible Foods, and who's your target customer? My target customer is uh, someone who can't imagine life without uh, meat and fish and dairy products, because if we don't succeed in making a product that you prefer to what you're eating now, we fail on our mission, which is to replace animal farming and fishing and so forth um, by making a product that outperforms in the market, that people like you prefer to what you're getting today from animal farming. Diana Donlin is director of the Cool Foods Campaign. She says people don't need to give up their beef to help the climate, but they should be more thoughtful about how cattle are raised and fed. It all comes down to a question of management. Um, I'd like to draw an analogy between the way we manage carbon and the way we manage cows. So um, we've come to think of carbon as our enemy, right? But it just depends on where the carbon is, where, where carbon forms, where carbon life forms. Um, so carbon in its form as a gas in the atmosphere, yes, we've overwhelmed the atmosphere, but we can have carbon as a solid in the ground and the soil, and that has multiple benefits. So um, we have landscapes on this earth, a third of them are grasslands, as Kat mentioned, um, the Serengeti, the, the prairies of the United States, the, um, the, the steppes of Russia. 
and they aren't well suited for much else beyond um, grazing herds of animals. So um, in this industrialized model of confinement agriculture, yes, that is incredibly harmful on so many levels, um, particularly the feed. So so much of the corn and soy that we're growing, I think it's 40% of it, goes directly to feed animals that should not be eating those things. They should be eating grass. And um, we're feeding them something that they were not designed to eat. And that has many, many repercussions for um, their health, human health, and the planet's health. Agriculture typically hasn't been a big part of the UN climate negotiations. Why is that, and how is that changing here in Paris? Well, I think it is because um, when climate was first being discussed, um, it was mostly the industrialized countries that got together and were looking at the problem, and they had economies that were producing emissions, um, so that was the most obvious um, place to start. Um, We have of course, so many countries that also are very um, agriculture dependent. And now that we're trying to bring those countries into the fold and have them um, create plans for how they are going to help us reach our climate goals, it certainly makes sense to look at agriculture. And unlike other sectors of the economy, agriculture is part of the solution as well as part of the problem. Again, how we manage for it. But we, we have all the solutions in agriculture using um, agroecological methods, using organic methods, using agroforestry, using methods that, that build soil fertility, which has you know benefits for food security, for water security, and also for climate security. Diana and I were sitting with Kat Taylor. She and her husband, Tom Steyer, own the Tomcat Cattle Ranch near Silicon Valley. She's also co-founder of the Beneficial State Bank in Oakland. Kat, you work at a bank. You know certainly about uh, people who don't have incomes who can afford a lot of the things that other people enjoy. Pasture-raised beef is a luxury for many people. So what do you say to people like, hey, you know, I got to eat. I want the cheapest meat possible. And that may be industrially produced. So... Um Fair point, but I think the frame has always been on um, a caloric look at diet, like how much per calorie uh, am I spending, as opposed to a quality look at diet. And even some of the most uh, avant-garde chefs who come from low-income communities care deeply about them, like Roy Choi, uh, understand that we need the most important thing to get to food deserts and low-income communities is food quality. So if you can reduce the amount of meat you eat, but make sure it's the very best, and just eat a modicum of meat uh, supplemented by a heavy plant-based diet, um, then you can actually achieve uh, optimize for all goals, a cost-efficient diet that is good for you and sustains the planet that we all depend upon. And uh, just to reiterate uh, a lot of the very important things that Diana was saying, um, even if we never ate another piece of beef again, we need these animals back on the lands. Um, I think if the ultimate outcome for Tomcat Ranch were that we reestablished um, the the biological impact of a migratory herd and left it to the wilds, in other words, managed it as if it were wild, didn't harvest animals, uh, it would still be uh, the most important thing we can do for climate, biodiversity, water quality, and retention. Um, 
because those are the animals that can harvest carbon from the air through photosynthesis. They're rapidly uh, snipping off the tops of plants multiple times, which makes the plants grow repeatedly, uh, engaging in photosynthesis and pulling carbon dioxide out of the air. So we've taken, humanity's taken carbon out of the ground, burned it, put it in the air and the oceans, and you say it needs to go back in the soil, and cows and other animals can do that. Yes, exactly. If you're just joining us, this Climate One program is a tour through the UN Summit in Paris. I'm Greg Dalton. This event has attracted thousands of participants from all over the world. Outside the aircraft hangars where the negotiations are happening, there's a global village for advocates, think tanks, and artists. The Green Zone is open to everyone. Step inside and you've entered a world of eco-excitement on every level. A DJ booth pumps out beats, powered by a row of willing volunteers on stationary bikes. Group of monks circles the perimeter, heads bowed in a silent single file. Youth demonstrations erupt in the lobby. People are here to be part of this moment, to shout, to sing, and to share their stories. My name is Teresa Siangatonu. I'm 27 years old. I was born and raised in San Francisco, but my family is from the island of Samoa. Um, my name is Isabella Borgeson. I'm from Oakland, California. Um, I've been living in the Philippines in Tanawan Leyte, where my mother is from, for the past almost two years. Teresa and Isabella are two winners of the Spoken Word for the World competition. Here's Isabella. So um, my family, my mom lives in Tanawan Leyte in the Philippines, which was the eye of the storm for Super Typhoon Haiyan, um, which hit the Philippines in November 8, 2013. Um, it was the strongest storm to ever make landfall in the recorded history of the world. Um, so I'm coming into this conference understanding that I'm representing the voices of my family back home, my family who don't have the privilege to be here right now to be sharing their stories and to understand, and with the understanding that um, typhoons in the Philippines are are growing in frequency and in strength, um, and that there needs to be changes happening. Um, when we are recovering from the previous typhoon, another typhoon is hitting us, and so we're constantly building and rebuilding our homes, burying and reburying our dead. And so it's it's something that we've learned to live with, and it's something that needs to be spoken at these conferences. That climate change is impacting us now. It's not just about future generations. It's our family members who are now um, being. A lot of us um, in our town. There's no one in our town who. Has hasn't lost someone um, from the super typhoon or hasn't lost their homes from the super typhoon. Members of our extended family had uh, had drowned in our house. So um, in our town, um, we were prepared for the winds, but no one knew what storm surge meant or no one expected storm surge, which is literally when the, the winds are so strong that it carries the ocean into our towns. Um, and uh, so many members of my family drowned in their homes. Um, my mother, who is someone who has always taught me that we go to the ocean for healing and we go to the ocean um, to be with our ancestors is now um, experiencing post-traumatic stress from the super typhoon in which every time she sees the ocean she's shaking because she knows that we've lost members of our family from the ocean and so it's a very psychological change you can see um, uh, children who um, my younger cousins who are scared of um, the rain scared of the typhoons and what that means and um, you can see the changing of the town in that way. You can see, for example, in my poem, I talk about the basketball court um, in our town is now a, a mass grave. Usually when you lose someone in your town or when you lose someone in your family, the entire community comes to help you to heal. What was so hard about this is that 
everyone in our town lost someone or lost your home or you lost everything. And so how can you be there? How can your town and your community really stand with you when everyone is grieving? There is no proper um, burial. There is no um, funeral. There is no of uh, the procession rites where we go into the houses and we and we have merienda and we, and we laugh and we joke together and we properly celebrate this person's life. There is none of that when there's so many deaths in our town. Islands of Oceania long after the news report when the next super typhoon has blown away my family's relief tents, we will still be standing and see salt-flooded rice fields, brown fisher folk demanding, do not turn away from the disasters yet to come. Our islands are in your hands. These spirits sing a warning. Andagat gugotom lagihap. The sea that feeds us will one day grow hungry again. I channel my ancestors and I channel my family every single time I'm on stage. And I know I'm not doing these stories in vain. And I know I have a responsibility every time I open my mouth. Teresa found poetry was a way to both connect with her family and to express her feelings about what's happening to her community. They are proud. They're really proud that I'm here in Paris. They're telling everyone back home and whatnot. And so I, and I just want to make them proud. And I think that's, that's the power of spoken word poetry. And when Issa was talking about really putting her faith behind the youth and that it's really the youth that's going to create these changes that we want, absolutely. And especially through an art form like this, because it's young people that are speaking their truth and their stories through this art form. And it's changing things. I can feel it while I'm here at COP that, it's, that these, po- these poems that we're speaking are making people think, are making people uncomfortable, are making people have conversations, and that's the power of it. This connection that you have when you're on a stage or in, in front of people who are um, receiving your story, um, and, and this exchange of uh, appreciation or support or just love, um, and you feel it. You feel it in your bones. You feel it, and I get really emotional when I perform certain pieces. Um, I always have to assess whether or not I feel safe enough to do certain pieces or not, but overall, um, the crowds are receptive. They 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 want to feel things, and I think poetry. This this art form gives people um, permission to do what that. What does it mean to belong to something that isn't sinking? What does it mean to belong to the very thing that is causing the flood? So many of us come from water, but when you come from water, no one believes you. Colonization keeps laughing. Global warming is grinning all at your grief. How you mourn the loss of a home that isn't even gone yet. That nobody believes you're from. How people are beginning to hear more about your island, but only in the context of vacations and honeymoons. Football and military life. Exotic women. Exotic fruit. Exotic beaches, but never asks about the rest of its body. The water. The ocean that it comes from. The reason why it's sinking. You explain and explain and clarify and correct their incorrect pronunciation. It's easy to feel caught up in this bubble of, like, talking about the bubble of cop, right, and talking about, like, um, scientific evidence or politics or this book. And, and when we remind folks that there's an urgency to this, that this is our families that are here, this, this is our homelands, and, and move folks to action because our words aren't just words. I mean, Teresa and I can, I, I, I won't speak for Teresa, but I know this because she's my sister, that like really our words are meant to create action, that we're, we're trying to create change in folks. We're not just trying to, you know, um, we're, not, we're not entertaining folks. This is, this is our survival here. I'm, I'm speaking these poems and it's hard for us. It's hard for me to... Um, 
uh, to to be talking about the super typhoon and the family members that we lost um, and my mother and be, to be missing home and to be missing Tanawan. Um, but we're, we're here to share those stories that are difficult for us to share because we know that they can make a difference. We know that they will inspire people to say, yes, we have to be fighting for these things right now. There's an urgency right now and there's a face that I can connect with it. It's not just some distant future of years to come and 1.5 or 2 degrees. It's like, you know, it's like what does, you know, what is our demand for 1.5 to stay alive really mean to us, to our island nations? It means our survival. It means our families. So I think when we have those poems and when we share those stories of our families, it makes that connection in ways that oftentimes you don't feel in without that type of connection that you have through art. That ends our walk around the recent Paris Climate Summit. Agriculture played a bigger role here than in past negotiations, and you'll be hearing more about food and climate. One of France's moves as the host of these talks was launching a campaign to encourage countries to take carbon dioxide from the sky and put it back in the ground, where it used to live in the form of coal, oil, and gas. We leave you now with author Michael Pollan explaining how that could happen. This video is from the Center for Food Safety. We now know how to put carbon back in the soil where it belongs. Plants capture carbon dioxide in their leaves and pump the carbon down through their roots to feed hungry microorganisms living in the soil. Now, what had been atmospheric carbon, a problem, becomes soil carbon, a solution. Practices like keeping soil covered with plants, increasing crop diversity, composting, and carefully planned grazing are proven ways to put carbon back into the soil. Carbon-rich soils act like giant sponges, absorbing water during floods and providing it to plants in times of drought. And adding carbon to soil makes the land much more productive. change can be overwhelming, yet there is real hope. Healthy soil can be a major sink for carbon, but this fact hasn't been well known until now, because now we know a soil solution is right beneath our feet.